Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days, are like, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower. The wind passes over it. It's gone. Its days know it no more. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children for those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established the throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. When I'm away from you, I'm not away from you. I love you. I think of you every day. I pray for you day and night, and I follow with you those unparalleled fighter verses. So, Lord, here we are. We want to hear from you from the Gospel of John. We want to see the glory of Jesus Christ who bought Psalm 103 for our sinful souls. So come and help me to speak this word faithfully. And Jesus, living Lord and Savior, stand forth in this moment. In your name I pray, amen. The last time we looked at the Gospel of John, we saw Jesus washing his disciples' feet. The most important, glorious person in the universe taking the role of a servant. And then he said in verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So follow me. Do what I do. A servant isn't greater than his master. 
Now, at the end of today's text, we hear something very different. We don't hear, you should follow me. You should do what I am about to do. Instead, we hear, you can't follow me. Verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow. And as it turns out, that is very bad news and very, very good news. Before we go there, let me give you the big picture. I'm going to land on this text five times in five different places. I'm going to make my journey through this text with five stopping places. I'm going to tell you right now what the five places are. Then we'll do it. Then I'll end by telling you what they are again. The first place we're going to stop is in Uh, verses 23 to 25, and we're going to ask why the details of who's sitting where and leaning where. Second, we're going to stop in verses 33 to 38, leaving out verses 35 and 34 and 35 for next week. They They get a whole week. So if you wonder, that's my favorite verse, and you skipped it. No, I didn't. I just postponed it. So we're going to go to 33 to 38 and ponder what's behind Jesus saying, you can't follow me now. Third, we're going to go to verses 27 to 30 and notice that the night, the darkness, not only swallows up the light, but is destroyed by the light. And fourth, We're going to go to verses 31 and 32, where he says that in this darkest of all hours, his glory will shine the brightest, and will the Father's. And finally, number five, we will go to verse 21, where John says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And I will ask, Does that have anything to do with your troubled spirit? The answer is yes. Let's go. Number one, verses 23 to 25, why the details? Jesus is at the Last Supper. He has just said that one of his disciples would betray him in verse 21. They didn't know who he was talking about. Now, verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter, wherever he was sitting, we don't know, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so the disciple, leaning back against Jesus said to him, who is it? Now, notice the details. Um, The table is on the floor, maybe six inches high. 
They're stretched out like petals on a flower, probably leaning on their left elbow on a cushion, their feet out behind them, eating with their right hand. Just the way it was done. That's why the word reclining at table is used. What are they reclining? They have chairs, don't they? No, they didn't use chairs. So they're reclining there. So the disciple whom Jesus loved, who I'll argue someday is John, the writer of this this, uh, gospel, is probably to Jesus' right. It says he's near him. So he's leaning like this, and Jesus is right there on the floor. And Peter, after Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, they're just stunned. And there's this silence, evidently, and Peter won't even break the silence. He says, ask him. To John, you're there, ask him. And if you want to make it quiet, just ask him. And it says he leaned against him. Now, it'd be hard to picture this if you didn't get the picture I just created. So he's leaning, and he just goes like this. He's right against Jesus. What is it? And Jesus says, it is he, verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And I'm guessing he said it softly because I don't think anybody heard it but John. And the reason I say that is because when he got up to leave, they didn't have a clue what he was doing. They said, what, is he going to give something to the poor? Is he going to buy some food? I think Jesus just said, John, it's the one I'm going to give this bread to. And the rest of them were wondering. What's the point of the details? This story story could be told without those. And my very simple answer is these details are a testimony, and intentionally so, to the fact that this gospel is an eyewitness account. In chapter 21, verse 24 we learn that the loved disciple, John, wrote the book. This verse is referring back up to verse 20, where the disciple whom Jesus loved is referred to. And John 21, 24 says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. So the beloved disciple who was leaning against Jesus at that night, knowing all the details with his own eyes, has written these things. And then again in chapter 19, verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. You hear, you hear the word saw, witness, saw, witness? This, the intentionality is this is an eyewitness story. That's why the details He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. In other words, the reason that this disciple calls himself the one whom Jesus loved is not because he didn't love the others. We've just seen him say in chapter 13, 1, he loved them to the end. The reason is because he wanted us to know that among all of them, he had an incredible, 
incredibly privileged, close position from which to write this unique testimony for us called the Gospel of John. I was there, he said. I know what I'm talking about. (coughs) These things really happened. And I hope that now for the rest of this message and the rest of your life, this flag will fly over the message, over the reading of this text, and over your reading of the Gospel of John. This is true. This is not a myth. This is not fiction. This is eyewitness testimony through the pen or the mouth of an inspired, authoritative apostle. It is an awesome thing to have this book. Number two, that's landing number one, the details. Why? It's an eyewitness testimony. Landing number two in verses 33 to 38, why did Jesus say, you can't follow me tonight? Let's read it. 38, and I'm going to skip 34 and 35. Little children, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now skip to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, Why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I see three, two reasons why Jesus said, you can't follow me now. One is bad news, and one is incredibly good news. First, the bad news. They couldn't follow him tonight because they were morally unable to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Peter, you you think you can follow me. You won't even make it through the night. And it wasn't just Peter who failed. All of them did. Chapter 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. That's the bad news. They were not ready. They couldn't make the sacrifices called for by following Jesus. They needed more power, which they could only get from the fullness of God's Spirit. That's what you'll need when you're tested like this in the middle of the night with swords brandished, ready to take any follower to the cross with him. 
you will need more than you've got. We need Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. There's another reason for why he, he said it. Jesus was about to do what only he could do. You can't follow me because what I have to do, I have to do alone. You can't do what I'm about to do. Only I can do what I'm about to do. I'm not going to die merely to set you an inspiring example. I'm going to die as a substitute to save you, not inspire you. You can't be your substitute. You have to have another. And that's what I'm about to do. I'm going to become tonight, tomorrow morning, your substitute. Now, the reason I think that's part of the meaning here is because if you just keep reading into chapter 14, watch what he says. I go to prepare a place for you. See, at the end of uh, verse, I'm skipping verse 3. That's the end of verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. Now verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, there's no following him, behind him, imitating him tonight. There's no walking beside him, helping him tonight. There's only him going ahead and us going through him. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I've got that to do tonight, and you can't do it. And if I don't do it, you won't get to the Father. You can't follow me now. I have work to do, and only I can do it. That's number two. Third, verses 27 to 30. The darkness swallows up the light and is destroyed by it. It winds up serving the light. So let's read verses 27 to 30. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I don't think that last sentence is there to tell us what time of day it is. You? It was night. 
You remember how this gospel began? Chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You remember chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. When no one can work. There was a work they couldn't do together. They had done a work together while it was day. Three years they had worked together. We must work together while it is day. Night is coming when nobody can work. I think he means except me. He goes into the night to do the work that only he can do. And he does it not in spite of the darkness. He does it with the unwitting and God-appointed help of the darkness. Only Jesus can destroy the darkness by being enveloped by the darkness. Only Jesus can abolish death by being swallowed up by death, like Jonah. Only Jesus can disarm Satan by surrendering to his servants. You remember what Jesus said when the mob came in Gethsemane a few hours later. This is recorded in Luke 22, verse 53. Here's what he said. This is your hour and the power of darkness. I love that statement. You hear the sovereign limitations being put on the darkness. (laughs) You don't get a century. You don't get a decade. You don't get a month. You don't get a week. You get an hour. My God. Indeed, I myself set the bounds of this hour, and I will tell you, it's over Sunday morning. So you get an hour, and here I am to do what I came to do. So darkness, go ahead. Do what you can do. And then Sunday, I'm coming out. I will break the chains of death. I will dispel the darkness. I will nullify the power of Satan. And my redeeming work will be finished. And I mean really finished for his bride, his elect, his sheep, his own. All the sins of my people will be paid for. All my father's wrath against his elect will be removed and satisfied. All the judgment and condemnation that rests upon my church will be passed. And a flawless, gorgeous robe 
of righteousness will be completed by Sunday morning. And that is the glory of verses 31 and 32. So now we leave stopping place number three and go to stopping place number four. Verses 31 and 32. Jesus shining with glory through the night as he swallowed up by darkness. Shining now is the Son of Man. Glorified. Let's read it. Verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, made glorious, shining like the sun. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now remember, if you've been around for several years, the text we circle back to more than any other text in these messages is chapter 1, verse 14 and 16. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. Where did that come to its fullest expression? This night and that morning when everything turned dark. Jesus and his Father were at their brightest in the dark for you. This achievement that night, that morning, this achievement was the greatest achievement that the Father and the Son ever accomplished. You think creation was great? I mean, do you think the universe is something? It's like a peanut in the pocket of Jesus. This is big. When the Father and the Son conspire before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for themselves by the entrance of Almighty God into this world to be spit on and swallowed up in human darkness in order to shatter that darkness and bring his enemies into his everlasting kingdom, saved to sin no more. That's great. In verses 18 and 19, this is before our text, he had already said that Judas would betray him. But only there, in verse 19, does he explain why it is so crucial to him on this night that he say beforehand what Judas is going to do. So let's read why. Verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, quoting the Old Testament. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, 
you may believe that I am. Period. I know it says he. It's not in the text. It's exactly like John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And we all know what that means. Tell them I am sent you, Moses. Yahweh, my name is built on I am. That's who I am is I am. Absolutely. And now Jesus, before Abraham was, is. And here he says, I'm telling you about what Judas with his will is going to do and stay accountable to God Almighty because I'm God. Which sheds a good bit of light on why verses 31 and 32 read the way they do. The Son glorified in the Father and the Father glorified in the Son and this mutual in each other glorification so that we are to feel the Father and the Son in their unique single deity before the world was planning this evening in a beautiful origination by the Father and submission by the Son. It was the most glorious moment in the history of the world and will remain the most glorious moment forever. Which is why in Revelation, in chapter 5, when we're all surrounding Christ, we will say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's what we'll sing centrally forever. Because this was the greatest. Nevertheless, last stopping place. Nevertheless, this God was troubled in his spirit. So let's go to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, every single person in this room, every single person watching by video is troubled in spirit from time to time. Sometimes so Seriously troubled, you can barely function. The word troubled here, agitated, disquieted, unpeaceful. It's used earlier by the, by the pool. When it got agitated, if you went down into it, you get healed. Same word. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. This is why I'm ending the way I'm ending. 
If, if, you, if you were to ask me right now, hey, why are you shifting gears from his trouble to my trouble? Is that in the text? Yes. Chapter 14, verse 1. There are no chapter divisions in the original. Let not your hearts be troubled. Same word. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So in verse 21, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. And in verse 1 of chapter 14, we're told not to be. So, here's my main gift to you from that. There is a sinful, troubled spirit, and there is a holy, troubled spirit. Jesus is experiencing something like what we experience yet without sin. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tested, legitimate translation, tested in every point like us, yet without sin. He wasn't sinning. His soul was troubled. That's important for you to know. There is a disquiet of heart without sin. There is an agitation of soul without sin. There is a kind of troubled turmoil in the spirit that's not owing to sin. We know it must be so. Jesus experienced it without sin. What's the difference between the sinful, troubled soul and the holy, troubled soul? I'll tell you what I think the difference is from this text. I'm sure there are other differences. The sinful, troubled soul is owing to unbelief. I get that from verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe on God. Believe on me. Believe. You don't need to be troubled. Believe me. You don't need to be troubled. So if your troubledness is coming from a lack of trust in the promises of God, it's not a good thing. And the holy troubled soul is not owing to unbelief. It's owing to love. like love for Judas. You might say, well, we've seen this two or three times that he's troubled. Isn't isn't this Gethsemane trouble? I mean, he sweats blood. And yes, that's troubled soul. In a few hours, he'll be sweating blood. His soul will be crying out to God. That's trouble. That's not what we are given to think. Rather, here, 
he is saying, one of you is about to betray me. One of you is about to betray me. That's what he says. He was troubled in his spirit and testified, saying, one of you is going to betray me. And surely, if you just ponder it for a moment, the emphasis would fall on you. One of you. Three years, three years we've been together. And every one of you has tasted the powers of the age to come. Every one of you has cast out demons. Every one of you has done mighty works in my name. Every one of you has heard my most intimate teaching and watched me open the secrets of the kingdom of God. One of you. And his soul was troubled because he loved them all. I can hear David, Absalom, Absalom. Or Jesus himself. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you and you would not? He was troubled in his spirit because he loved. So, I want to encourage you with this. Part of Christ-like Christian living is turmoil of soul. Part of Christ-like Christian living is regular. I'm tempted to say constant, but that might need more time to explain from Romans 9, 2 where Paul says, I have constant anguish because of my kinsmen who are lost. But let's just say, for those ordinary mortals like us, often. And in those moments where God grants you holy turmoil, it is owing to the fact you love someone who's on the brink of destroying himself and defaming God. And you know who that is in your life. It's your son, your mom, your sister, your colleague, your neighbor. And God grants you from time to time a heart like Jesus. And you can hardly stand the thought of Judas. No. No. And then you lay hold on God. Right. That's a good thing. That's not simple. But don't be anxious about tomorrow. What you should eat or what you should drink or what you should put on. Your Father knows what you need. Believe God. Believe Jesus. I conclude. Here we go. Number one, this story is true. Number two, you can't follow Jesus in doing the saving work he did for you. This was a work he alone could do for you. It's really good news that you cannot 
follow him. He went ahead by himself and did what only he could do. Three, the darkness swallowed up the light and was destroyed by the light. Four, the Father and the Son were glorified in that hour by accomplishing the most glorious achievement that will ever have been accomplished in time or eternity. And five, therefore, trust the Father and trust the Son to free you from sinful turmoil, fretting, and put proper bounds around holy turmoil. Maybe I better say one more sentence about that. Because I ask myself the question, what, what should I do in a moment of almost paralyzing agitation for somebody I care about. What should I do? I can't live there forever. I can't function there. I can't get a sermon ready. I can't love my wife. I can't deal with my kids when they're happy. I, well, I, I, if it's not sin, I, can't, I still can't live with it. Here's all I, all I know to say from experience and what I see in the Bible the same faith that protects you from sinful anxiety and turmoil puts living boundaries, containments around holy turmoil so that it will not destroy you, won't paralyze you, won't keep you from rejoicing with those who rejoice. So trust him both ways. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ. What a savior. I love your son. And since you are glorified in him and he is glorified in you in this most awesome of nights, I love you in him. We do, Lord. And so I ask now for those watching and listening and in this room that if any has not received the gift that Jesus died to give, forgiveness for sin, removal of wrath, completion of righteousness, the ending of condemnation, that they would receive that gift now by faith. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.